So, Matthew chapter 9, and we are in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and his disciples, with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reading of Your Word, and we pray that You will please bless it. Bless this time as we gather and sit at Your feet and learn from You. Lord, on this day, we do thank You for our mothers, uh, for the mothers who have... uh, poured into all of our lives and, and brought us up and raised us and and pray that you would bless them. We thank you for that gift. And Lord, we have so many young mothers here in our church. I pray that you would raise up a generation of godly mothers who, who not only love their children and nurture their children, but uh, want to see them grow spiritually. Father, mothers who will who will be found in in the the late night hours in prayer over their children, searching the Scriptures and, and, and teaching their children within their homes. God, I pray that You would raise up a generation of mothers who want to take part in the training of their children in the home and, and, and in a time when, when families and the family structure seems to be so trivial to most people. Lord, we exalt Your design for the family and we pray that You would would bless us with godly mothers within our church. Father, I want to lift up to You the Jalo Malo people of Bangladesh. A group of people amongst whom there is not one single known Christian. Lord, we take for granted the fact that we brush shoulders with Christians on a regular basis and we get to come and gather as Christians and worship. Father, I pray that You would work within Your people. Raise up someone who could go to those people and share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that they would would be converted, so that we would be with them in glory. God, I pray for Jordan and Sidney Grogan in Canada as they uh, not only... uh, begin a ministry there and are seeking to, to share the gospel and, and, and see souls converted and, and plant a church uh, eventually, Lord, but they also have uh, a child on the way. I pray that You would just uh, comfort them and guide them through that and, 
and help them know that they are not alone, even though they seem at times to be so far away from friends and family. I pray that you would just bless them and comfort them. Lord, I pray for for John and Lisa Nelson in Asheville, that you would help them to be able to to get solidified there, find find jobs, find places to live, uh, all those details of life that have to take place for them to live there so that they can then go out and begin to share the gospel with uh, the people there in the River Arts District of Asheville. I pray that you would give them boldness and I pray that you would give both of these families fruit for their labor as they seek to share the gospel. God, I pray that as we come to this passage of Scripture and we look again at the Lord Jesus, that you would once again stir our affections for Christ. Father, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that is teaching a mind-boggling narrative. And yet most of us have heard it so many times that we will gloss over it. It doesn't even affect us anymore. God, I pray that we would not be that way this morning. That as we study this, this story would would be as brand new to us. That it would delight our hearts and affect us as we read it. And that we would leave here, of course, with a better understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. And an appreciation for what He's done for us in His work on the cross. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So as you can see, we're moving into the last section of miracles uh, in in chapter 9. And in this miracle today, we're seeing the pinnacle of the power of Jesus as He performs uh, miracles amongst people and specifically healing types of miracles and, and, and physical defects and things like that. Um, and before we get there, I want to do you know, what we've done several times, walk through where we've been, get us to where we are, because like we learned in our Sunday school class this morning, to understand how to interpret stories like that and, and like this and try to figure out what God has for us to learn we have to figure out what Matthew wanted us to see here. And so we ask questions like, why does the author say this? Why does he say it here? And so I want to do that. So flip back just a few pages to chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, we saw Jesus begin His earthly ministry. And verse 23 says, He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So there, Jesus began his earthly ministry. And we see that it was a ministry of teaching, traveling around in the synagogues, teaching and preaching or proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was the scope of his ministry. He traveled around teaching, preaching, and then healing and and performing miracles. Then in chapter 5, you can see we start the Sermon on the Mount and we walk through that. Chapters 5 through 7 is an example of the message that Jesus proclaimed. 
And we went through that great sermon and, and we saw that the message that Jesus preached was not a new message. It was startling to some of the people of His day, but it wasn't new. He, he was simply reinforcing what God had stated from the beginning. He was just saying, no, this is what the law says. This is what God expects. And He was calling the people to radical obedience, radical holiness before God that would begin first in their hearts and then flow out into their actions. So that was His message. And then at the end of chapter 7, we saw that the people were astonished. You remember that word? They were literally thunderstruck, hit out of themselves at His authority. Because He didn't continuously refer back to other teachers and other Pharisees and other landmark rulings in the synagogue. He just said, this is what the law says. This is what you do. He had authority unmatched in their day. And they were astonished. And that would bring most people, these people in this day and even in our day, we come to the same conclusion. Okay, he teaches these things. Sure, he has authority. But who is this man to tell me what to do with my life? And so Matthew presupposes that question in, into chapter 8. And chapters 8 and 9 are given to show us how God validated the words of Jesus with miracles and signs and wonders. And we've seen over and over as we walk through those, uh, the, the most specific lesson we've learned is that Jesus is God in human flesh. Therefore, God as the creator of all things has rule and reign over all things. And so when he says do something, we have to obey. That's kind of the, the scope that we're, we're, we're getting of Jesus. He is God. So verses 1 through 4. Chapter 8, he touches a man with the most wretched of physical diseases of this day, leprosy. Jewish law stated that to touch a leper made you unclean, undefiled. But rather than contracting leprosy and becoming unclean, the leper contracts health from Jesus. He's healed of his leprosy while Jesus remains undefiled. And then in verses 5 through 13, we have a centurion who comes to Jesus. He has a servant who is at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly, he says. And so, rather than turning this Gentile, this Roman soldier down, Jesus grants him the miracle, praises the man's faith, and gives a lesson on the global scope of redemption. This is not just about Jews. This is everybody. This Gentile has a greater faith than all in Israel. And in verses 14 through 17, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, a woman who in this society was second-class citizen at best. Jesus goes in, heals her of her fever, and then people from all over Capernaum are bringing him sick and, and those oppressed by demons. And he has this, this sort of a, a healing spree. And Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53 to, to show us that this healing, physical healing and spiritual healing, is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will ultimately do on the cross when He heals spiritual sickness and disease by conquering sin and death. That was to that part, those, that first section of miracles. Then we see two men, and Jesus is discussing with them about discipleship, their they want to be disciples, but they're obviously not ready for the task. And so we, we kind of learn that 
To follow Jesus is not what it appears on the surface. It's not all show. It's not all fun and games. It's, it's something that takes serious contemplation and consideration. Then we moved into the second list of miracles. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus calms the storm. We find out that this man, Jesus, has authority over the natural elements. He calmed the storm. We, we went back to the beginning and we learned that up until this time period, only God has that kind of authority. Only God creates weather and so only God has the authority to do with it as He pleases. And then here comes Jesus and He does with it as He pleases. And so again, the, 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 the story or the teaching there is this is God with us. Verses 28 through 34. Jesus cast out demons and we see that He has authority over the powers of evil. Namely, Satan and his demons. They are at His beck and call. Just like a storm, just like leprosy, just like a fever, just like paralysis. The demons say, yes sir, when Jesus tells them what to do. Then we move into chapter 9. Verses 1-8, through eight, He healed the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof, but not before showing that He has the authority to forgive sins. The sins that you and I commit, that where we, we sin against God and His commands and His law. God Himself. And then Jesus comes along and He says, I have the authority to say those are forgiven or they're not forgiven. Again, Jesus is God. He can do that because that's, that's His duty. Then for the past two weeks, we've looked at two more discipleship lessons. And we learned a little more about being a disciple. And, and, and the idea there was that to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus or what we would call a Christian, you have to first realize that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. You are sick and in need of a physician. We have nothing to offer in the realm of, of good deeds as far as our righteous standing with God. We are sinners. Our good deeds are worthless. But the righteousness of Jesus is of infinite value. And if we come to Him and receive that by imputation, by gift, then we can stand before God as righteous. But we must come humbly, admitting we're sinners. We need a Savior. We don't have any righteousness to offer. Then we're ready and where we need to be to become disciples and followers of Jesus. So then we come to this last section of miracles. And this story today, there are actually two miracles. A miracle inside of a miracle. And they both come together to give us one lesson. And this will encourage us as we look again at Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our God and our shepherd. And we're looking at Jesus. And what do we learn about Jesus through this passage? So look with me again at verse 18. And, and we're looking at our Lord. He says, it says, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in. And knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So this sets the stage for the overarching miracle that takes place in this story. Now, upon first reading, especially in Matthew's Gospel, he has this a very abbreviated account of this story. 
we, we, we miss some things. So we, we hop over to Mark and Luke. We find out this ruler was a man named Jairus. And Jairus was a ruler, yes, but he was a ruler in the synagogue. And it's very likely that he was the highest official in the synagogue there in Capernaum. Now, think about what we know about Jesus and his ministry in contrast to the religious system that was already in place. They weren't exactly ministry partners. They were usually at one another constantly throughout his whole ministry. And so Jairus was a part of this religious system. It's very likely that he was a Pharisee himself. He held a very high standard. He was a ruler. Now this time period again, the synagogue is not just church, like we say church. For the Jewish people who lived in a society that was governed by their religious beliefs, the synagogue was a place of, of governing and ruling. They used the law of Moses to make rulings and, and, and govern uh, civil cases. And so this was like the center of their, their civil life in the synagogue. And so Jairus was more than likely very well known, very religious, almost at the status of a, a religious figure and a political figure, if we can think that way. And he carried a lot of religious weight in this community. So he's a ruler there in the synagogue. And Matthew says that he came and knelt before him. Knelt before Jesus. Uh, Mark and Luke uh, tell us that he was, or I think it was Luke said he was, he fell at the feet of Jesus. And the word here is the same as when the leper came to Jesus. Where we get our word prostrate. He bowed on his knees. You picture Jairus coming. He bows on his knees with his face to the ground. This posture of of worship, a lot of times this word is translated worship. On his face, in total submission before Jesus. Now, so this, so this is a big deal. Matthew just says a ruler came in and knelt before him, but we, we dig in there, we find out this is, this is a big deal. One of the highest ranking religious leaders in Capernaum has come to Jesus, bowed himself in a posture of humility. Now, in a society that, that put a lot of weight on on personal pride and, and rank and honor for a man to come and fall at the feet of, of this carpenter. This is a big deal. This is definitely out of place. We talked this morning about finding things that are just out of place. This is out of place. But then we read why he was, he was acting like this. My daughter has just died, he says. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, once again, if you go over to Mark and Luke, their, their stories are a lot longer. And you find out that there were actually two different messages that came to Jesus about this girl. The first time, Jairus comes and he says, my daughter is, is dying. Then later they come and say, she's dead. Matthew just scrunches it together and says, my daughter has just died. Matthew puts these two together. So we have this girl the idea you get is that there's this girl who was so sick when her daddy took off running, heard Jesus was in town or whatever, took off running, so sick that by the time he got there, she was dead. Very sick. She was his only daughter. She was 12 years old, Mark and Luke tell us. Now in this society, a girl, the day after she turns 12, she becomes a woman in Jewish culture. So she has barely crested womanhood, the only daughter of this man, and she has just 
died. Now that tells us why he was acting in this way. Mark and Luke, again, they tell us that, that Jairus earnestly besought Jesus. So you picture this man falling at the feet of Jesus, begging him, come to my house, lay your hand on my daughter. If you lay your hand on her, she will live. So we see faith. There's faith here. We don't know how much he knows about Jesus and his ministry or what he's seen of, of, of Jesus, but apparently he just he believes. If you touch her, she will live. Now, keep that in the back of your mind and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Anyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field and touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on all the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean and on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus, on the seventh day, he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and at evening he shall be clean. And if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean. And it shall be a statute for them, a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So, Jews are not allowed to touch dead bodies without becoming unclean. If someone died in the house you were in, everything in the house becomes unclean. All the people, you got an open container of something there, dump it out, it's unclean. Because there was a dead person in the house. A dead body was the most unclean thing a Jewish person could touch. Contact means, as we read, ceremonial uncleanness, defilement. Seven days separated from the families, separated from corporate worship. Jairus comes to Jesus and says, Please come to my house and touch my dead daughter. The average Jew is thinking, are you kidding me? 
not touching a dead person. That's disgusting. That's unclean. That will defile me. That will separate me from worship. There's no way I'm touching a dead body. But what does Jesus do? Verse 19, And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Goes with him. No questions asked. No qualifications. Just goes. And Matthew says that his disciples went with him. Now this was a group of his his close disciples, as well as a crowd of followers. Mark and Luke tell us that there was a great multitude of people who had been following Jesus for some time now. They're following Jesus, going to Jairus' house. Now this is where we run into the first parenthesis. Within this bigger miracle, there's a smaller miracle. Look at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So, we have this other scene coming in. Matthew, his, his behold, look, you won't believe this. He says, he's en route to the house of Jairus to heal his daughter. A woman comes up who has suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now this was more than likely connected to her female anatomy and she's been suffering for 12 years this bleeding issue mark and luke again tell us that she has exhausted every resource she's gone to every doctor she's tried everything to no avail she spent all of her money nobody could fix her as a matter of fact she's worse off now than when she began all right now turn to the book of leviticus Chapter 15. And I'll begin reading in verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, and in the uncleanness of her, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until evening. So here, again, there, there is a prescription in the law for this very thing that she's suffering from. And notice again, just like touching a dead body, a woman in this condition is considered unclean or defiled. Every day that it lasted was another day of impurity. Every bed she laid on was unclean. Every chair she sat in was unclean. Every person who touched her or touched one of those things became unclean. If this woman was married, she would have not been able to sleep with her husband because then he would become unclean. Her children would not have been able to run and jump into the bed with her in the morning because then they would have become unclean. If she wasn't married, this condition would basically have rendered her unmarriable. More than likely in this culture, if she had been married when this disease came along, it wouldn't have been long before her husband said, I'm out of here. 
But if she wasn't married, she was pretty much unmarriable. Who, what man would willfully join himself to a woman who knew that she was consistently unclean? Now look back at verse 28 of Leviticus and we'll continue reading. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Now notice, if she is cleansed, then it is prescribed what she can do with the aid of the priest to welcome her back into society. He could accept her offerings and go and make the proper sacrifice, the atonement for her, and she could be deemed clean. Okay, you're clean now. Go. Now notice the language again. This, this condition is viewed as defilement, in need of atonement. The priest could only say, thank you for your turtle doves. I'll go take care of this and I'll be back. He couldn't make her clean. If she's cleansed, then she can bring this stuff, but, but he couldn't make her clean. He can only do the, the sacrifices. Now in both of these cases, they're specifically addressed in the Old Testament Mosaic Law. Now the question that we often ask is, why are these laws in here? This is, this is strange stuff. You can't always help it if a family member dies in your home, or, or you definitely can't help it if you've got this discharge of blood. But God's law states you're unclean. And if you are unclean, you must be quarantined from the community, kept from corporate worship. Anybody who touches you is defiled. Why would God make laws like this? Well, first there's what we know of the law as in, in that it shows us the character of God. All, all diseases and all uncleanness and all death, they're pictures of sin. They're not supposed to be a part of humanity. Going back to creation, but they are introduced because of sin. They are the result of sin and they're given to help. These laws are given to help us show us the unwavering separation from sin that God has. He's perfectly holy. He must remain separated. He cannot come in contact with any sort of defilement. And so he says, when these things come in, separate them. Because I am holy. So they, they help us see God's holiness. And then secondly, remember these laws were given to a group of a couple million people who wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. No vaccinations, no hospitals, no doctors. They're just out there in the desert. God in His sovereignty is carrying out divine health care. You'd imagine a dead body or some sort of virus breaks out in this community of people who live in tents and their, 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 their sanitation standards were nowhere near what ours are, a virus could break out and wipe out tens of thousands of people like that. And so God in His, in His sovereignty is, is keeping them preserved and, and healthy. So those laws are not useless. They, they, they provide us with something to see God's character and, and, and He's providing us with health care, but they would be very hard for those who suffer from this stuff, you can imagine, I mean, I can't imagine, you ladies can imagine this, this, these rules and having to obey these laws. So, so this lady comes to Jesus amongst the crowd and she's, she's saying to herself, if I could just t 
touch his garment, I will be made well. She's telling herself that. She's got it in her mind somehow. If I could just get to Jesus, I just got to touch Jesus. No, if I can just touch his garment, I will be cleansed. I will be made well. Now Mark and Luke tell us that she came up behind Jesus. More than likely because of her condition. It had been around for 12 years. Probably ostracized, maligned in the community. Probably very embarrassed of her situation. Nobody's supposed to be touching her anyway. She's supposed to not touch anybody. All she wanted to do was get close enough to sneak a touch of his garment. And she, she said, I'll be made well. So she touched him. Touched his garment, the hem of his garment. Mark and Luke said that as soon as she touched him, her, her uh, flow of blood was dried up and she was made well. And those authors also tell us that whenever that power went out, Jesus felt it. He felt power go out from him and so he turns and he's like, alright, who touched me? In this mob of people, who touched me? And his disciples are going around, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Peter's like, uh, Jesus, the better question would be, who hasn't touched you? You're in a crowd. Everybody's touching you. And he says, no, some, something special has taken place. And that's where Matthew picks back up in verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus healed a paralytic and He said, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Here he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. The phrase made you well would better be translated, your faith has saved you. In the salvation sense. It's used elsewhere in Scripture. In the salvation sense of, of, of saving. Your faith has saved you. Matthew says instantly, or from that hour, she was made well. Again, she was saved. That ends the parenthesis. We're Done with the miracle, inside of the miracle, we move back into the original story in verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, He said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at Him. Now in this place, first century Palestine, when someone died, first of all, you buried them that day. But before that uh, ceremony, the burial you would hire instrumentalists and mourners to come to your house for the, the funeral celebration. So enough time has passed where they had hired these flute players, these mourners. They are at the house now. I think that's why the other miracle, that's one of the reasons the other miracle was included here, was so that we know that some time has passed. Jesus stops and has this interchange and time has passed. Matthew wants us to, to know this girl is really good and dead. And then Jesus shows up. And Matthew says that they were making a commotion. Again, in this time period, they hired mourners. Now this is way outside of our, our cultural understanding. Even the poorest of people had, were required to hire at least two flute players and one mourning woman. And their job was to show up, say, what was the girl's name? Tell her what her name is. Okay, got it. And they would just start weeping and yelling out the girl's name. Crying out. They just That's all they did. They showed up and they mourned out loud. Made a commotion. 
Now Jairus, ruler of the synagogue, high religious official, probably fairly wealthy. He would have had more than one woman here. So Jesus shows up. You've got the instrumentalists playing this, this kind of sad, somber funeral music. You've got this group of people that just show up and their job is to weep out loud and cry and scream and make a commotion. And Jesus shows up and He says, Go away. The girl's not dead but sleeping. And this shows you the absurdity of this mourning thing because they're, they're mourning and all of a sudden they start laughing at Him. He's just cut it off. And they, they're, they're laughing at Him scornfully because of His statement. Now, why would they laugh? Because they know she's dead. I mean, that's our job. We show up. Somebody dies, they, they get a hold of us. She, this girl's dead. He just said she's not dead. So this is... They're thinking this man's a you know he doesn't he doesn't know what's going on he just showed up now when he says she's just sleeping he doesn't mean that she hasn't died he means for a dead person knowing what Jesus knows she's about to be alive again this death is it's just like a nap she's not going to be dead forever she had truly died but she she had been dead long enough for the funeral to begin but she wasn't going to stay dead and Jesus knows that now. We know this about death and we, we believe this about death. So, so Jesus comes in, sends them away. There's no need for a funeral procession. This girl is about to be alive. And then verse 25 says, When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Remember what we know about the law. Law says you don't touch a dead person. You don't touch a dead body. Very unclean behavior. Jesus took a few of His disciples in and the parents of this girl we read in the other Gospels. And you can imagine they're in their Jewishness, brought up in this culture, they're cringing deep in their gut as they see His hand go out to touch her. This would be like us sticking our hand in a dumpster or in a trash can at a, at a cafeteria. It's like you just don't know what you're going to touch. It's just gross. For a Jew, they would have been thinking the same thing. Just cringing deep inside of them, squeamish, imagining Jesus as He reaches out and touches this girl. But just like the leper, even though He, he overstepped his, his boundaries according to the, the traditional law, the leper became unclean. This dead girl, she contracted life. He didn't, get, he didn't become unclean. She became alive. Because she was just touched by the one who is the way and the truth and the life. She came back to life. The girl arose. Matthew just shortens this. We read this. She arose. This was a dead person. And he touched her and she came back to life. Now that's huge. And then verse 26, the report of this went through all that district. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus told them, don't tell anybody what has happened. Keep this on the down low. And apparently that didn't work because Matthew lets us know that everybody found out eventually. Jesus, son of Joseph, carpenter from Nazareth, this man who preaches this message with authority, has just raised Someone from the dead. And that makes sense, doesn't it? John 1. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is life. 
He's the source of life. There, there can't, death can't remain around him if he ceases or if he chooses to break that bond. The scripture says it is in him that we live and move and have our being. See, some people could argue and they say, well, leprosy, you know, people have been healed from leprosy, you know. Paralytics have gotten better. They've got on their, their, their path to, to, to health and they've gotten better. Sometimes fevers break. Storms always pass and the weather comes back. Sometimes even demons will leave and find a new host body, but dead people don't just get up. This is the pinnacle of his healing ministry. He's just raised a person from the dead. The, the curse that Adam was promised. You eat of the tree, you will die. Because Adam sinned, all people incur this judgment and human beings die. We're all under the bondage of death. We all die someday. This girl has died. Jesus shows up and shows that the power over death lies in His touch. Physical death is just an afternoon nap with Jesus. So we have in this story this man leading Jewish religious official high up on the political ladder and then we have a woman who's been expelled from the synagogue for her uncleanness. Spent every dime she has to get better. Only to get worse. Jairus comes falling at the feet of Jesus in, 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 a, in a, 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 a prostrate posture of worship. Pleading on behalf of his daughter. This woman just wants to sneak up behind Jesus and, and touch him to get a miracle for herself. Jairus' daughter had been well for 12 years Barely becoming a woman and then she's dead. This woman has suffered for 12 years from this wretched pain and misery, exclusion, hopelessness. Jairus' daughter dies and lots of people show up to the funeral. It's public. They make a big show. This woman is so humiliated. She doesn't want anybody to know she's there. Mark and Luke tell us that when Jesus turned around and saw her that she trembled in fear because she didn't want anybody to know she was there in this crowd. So these scenarios... They seem to be worlds apart, except for just a few things. Both of these victims, according to the Jewish law, were ceremonially unclean. Anyone who touches a dead person becomes unclean and defiled. Anyone who is around this woman with the, the issue of blood, she's, they are unclean and defiled. They're both unclean and defiled because these problems that they have represent something within humanity that's not supposed to be there. Sin. It's not supposed to be here and they have it. Therefore, they are ceremonially unclean. But when Jesus comes along and makes contact with these victims, the dead are raised to life and this woman is saved from her defilement. And when we read in the Old Testament, the priests, they could make sacrifices, they could sprinkle water, but they couldn't fix uncleanness. They couldn't just come along and say, well, just, you just forget about this time. You're, you're fine. You're clean. No, separation had to take place. There had to be that seven days. The priest was powerless over this type of defilement, but we see Jesus who comes no matter the sickness, no matter the death, no matter the uncleanness or defilement. He's unaffected. He is not susceptible to our defilement. He can do what no priest, no high priest has ever been able to do. He doesn't need seven days of purification. Set yourself aside. He touches them. They're clean. Well, they touch him 
and they're clean. While all the Jews around are saying, no, 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 don't touch it. You're going to get defiled. Don't do that. What are you thinking? Jesus, and he's, he's not susceptible. It doesn't affect him at all. He fixes it when he touches it. So we, we go back to the law. And the Mosaic law, again, uses words like unclean and defiled and, and cut off from the people, from Israel. To describe things that are unavoidable. Imagine being a woman one time every month. He's like, sorry, can't come to church this week. Please don't sit on anything or lay anywhere. Separate yourself. Or a guy, you know, you get a little eczema on your skin. Oh, I see that. You're out. Seven days. Out of here. You, there's stuff you can't help. And, and you're separated. Quarantined. All of that, of course in order to keep people safe and healthy, but most importantly, is symbolic of sin. It cannot exist in the presence of God. He's so holy, so righteous. He must remain separated from us and from our defilements. But again, we see Jesus who is God, but He's God in human flesh. And He comes and He meets us where we are and He touches us in our defilement, plagued. We are plagued in sin and disease and He touches us. We're separated from the camp, proverbially speaking. We're, we're unable to come before a holy God because of our defilement. And so Jesus comes down to us. He touches us. He becomes a mediator that Aaron and Eliezer, they could never be because He could just fix it in an instant. So how is it? We see that Jesus is God and so He... he can take this stuff away from us. But how is it that in being a man, he can touch a leper, touch a dead girl, be touched by a woman with a discharge of blood, and he doesn't catch it? Why is the humanity of Jesus not defiled in that way? When Hebrews chapter 13, this, this will be up here, this is what we read in verse 11 of Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. Now those are the animals we talked about. Those are the sacrifices that the priests had to make in order to atone for the sin and the defilement of the people. But notice in verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. That's how Jesus... Is not defiled by a sick woman. That's how Jesus doesn't catch leprosy. That's how Jesus doesn't catch the uncleanliness of a dead body. It's because the reproach for those things, the uncleanness, the defilement for those things that comes, He's already taken it on Himself and carried it outside the camp. He's taken the reproach that comes from these things that symbolize our sin and He's taken it for us. The reproach doesn't exist because He's carried it for us. It's not there. You can't catch something that's not there because He bore it in our place. So you can see now, you can leave now, and you can, like these Jews, they would say, don't touch a dead body. Don't touch that. Don't. Oh, you can't go around there. We have people who we say, oh, they're too far gone. Oh, they're too sinful. Or maybe you think of yourself. Don't touch me, Jesus. I know what I did yesterday. Don't touch that person. They're too far gone. And Jesus has bore the reproach. The reproach is not there for those who are Christians. So we, we repent and we, we receive this sacrifice. We receive forgiveness. 
So in closing, we, we saw in 9 through 17, we must admit that we are sinful to be disciples of Jesus. We come to Jesus and repent of our sin and we, we receive the atonement for our sin. And then here we see two pictures of, of defilement in the Jewish community that Jesus says, it's not that big a deal to me. I just touch it. It just comes around me and it's gone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.